at least 10 people dead at his hands, killings that possibly cover a period of 20 years, and no one has ever been charged with these crimes. This week, we examine the Long Island serial killer. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of the Killing, Missing, Hidden podcast. Guess who this is? That's right, your buddy Brad. This week we're going to be covering the Long Island serial killer. That was requested by listener Mandy. And since I live to serve, you get the Long Island serial killer this week. Before we jump in, we got to do some shout-outs for some new members of our private Facebook group. Jessica, Jasmine, Juliana, David, Teresa, Amy, Amanda, Jennifer, and Rachel. Thank you all so very, very much for jumping in. I know you're doing it because you want to be a member of the group, not because of the awesome prize we're giving away in less than 10 days. In fact, it's going to be later on this week, isn't it? Holy cow. Appreciate y'all joining the cult. We need a name, don't we, for our, our followers, our minions here? Yeah, I'm not creative enough to do that. So if anybody has any good suggestions, please hit me up. I'd love to hear them. Now, I'll say at the outset, this story was really a bit of a tough nut to crack because you can spend as much time on it as you want and feel like you've never found all the information that's out there, which means you just have to cut off your research at some point, which means no doubt I've left out something important. So feel free to chastise me in the comments or by email or skywriting. I've never been insulted via skywriting, so that would be kind of cool. Um, I've tried to present the story in a way that's easiest to follow without getting bogged down in a bunch of details or excluding any information that seemed necessary. It was a balancing act. I hope I succeeded. But if I failed, again, chastise me or hit up. This is Mandy's fault. You can go after her. She wanted this episode. So I like that idea better. Send the Skywriters to Mandy, not to your buddy Brad. A quick overview before we begin this tale. The Long Island serial killer is also known as Lisk because it spells out a cool name in those initials. It's also known as the Gilco Beach Killer and the Craigslist Ripper. He is an unidentified serial killer who has murdered somewhere between 10 and 16 people over a period of 20 years the bulk of which were female sex workers. The bodies were left on the south shore of Long Island, New York, hence the name Long Island Serial Killer. The bulk of them were found within roughly two and a half miles of each other off of Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach, which is where he gets the Gilgo Beach Killer name from. See, it's all falling in together. You got to love it when it all comes together. That's what Hannibal said from the A-Team, right? Okay, I'll shush. So it seems like the best place to start the story is with Shannon Gilbert. She was a 23-year-old escort who advertised her services on Craigslist. She was taken by a driver to the home of Joseph Brewer, 
a new client who lived in Oak Beach just after midnight on May 1st, 2010. At 4.51 a.m., she made a 23-minute long call to 911, claiming someone was after her and trying to kill her. Shannon ran from house to house, banging on doors, seeking help. A couple residents tried to give her aid, such as Gus Kalati, but she ran away screaming from the safety they could have provided. During her 911 call, two male voices could be heard in the background. Brewer, her client, and then her driver, Michael Pack. Brewer could be heard screaming to get Gilbert out of his house, while Pat could be heard trying to convince Shannon to get in the car so he could take her home. Kaladi watched the scene unfold after Shannon refused help and claimed she was trying to do her best to hide from Pack, in his opinion. But Kaladi felt like she was heavily impaired as she did so. Uh, she apparently was hiding behind bushes and under cars, almost in a cartoonish style. She eventually ran off into the darkness. And by the by, it took the police about an hour to respond to her phone call. Brewer and Pack were both questioned, but were never considered serious suspects. Brewer claimed either that he thought Shannon was really a male sex worker and that's why he wanted her out of his house or that she started having some sort of breakdown or panic attack and ran away screaming from his house. Different sources say different things. Pack, meanwhile, claimed that he thought Shannon was just trying to keep him from getting his cut of the money. For those who don't know, we'll have a short class on the modern business plan for prostitutes. Um, sex workers no longer tend to have a dedicated pimp, but rather hire drivers who take them to and fro a client's house. The drivers are also there to provide security and muscle, and in exchange, they get a cut of the earnings from the night, sometimes demanding as much as 50% of the take. Now, it seems important to note at this juncture that Shannon was suffering from bipolar disorder and possibly other mental health issues. However, she refused to ever see a doctor or take any of the medications she had been prescribed in the past. She also enjoyed using cocaine and ecstasy, usually as part of her job, but sometimes just for herself. Now, when police finally arrive, they do a limited search around the neighborhood for Shannon, but find no clues. This Oak Beach neighborhood sounded like it was a gated community with security cameras throughout, However, police never thought to ask for security footage until about a year later, at which point it had been recorded over dozens of times and could not be recovered. Now, the following day, not yet knowing her daughter is in trouble, Mary Gilbert, her mother, receives a call from a Dr. Peter Hackett, who asked if she had seen Shannon. Mary said she hadn't, and Dr. Hackett claimed he was running a house for wayward girls. Shannon had spent the night there, he claimed, but had disappeared, worrying him. Mary, at the beginning of the story at least, thinks nothing of this call and moves on with her life. So the first official victim of the Lisk was found in December of 2010, a few months later, by a police officer and his dog during routine training exercises. The body was nothing more than skeletal remains in a burlap sack. 
Once they began to search the area, three more bodies were found in the same condition over the next two days. The victims were soon thereafter identified as Maureen Bernard Barnes, 25, Megan Waterman, 22, Melissa Barlethemy, 24, and Amber Lynn Costello, 27. All four were known sex workers who advertised their services on Craigslist. Oddly, the bodies were sort of displayed in a manner so that if, say, the killer wanted to return to the area, he would have an opportunity to admire his work. It's really important to understand the area where these bodies were found because this dude picked a really smart location to dump the bodies. I mean, I don't want to sit here and praise a serial killer, but he, he did good in this in this area. The location provided a ton of challenges to police. The vegetation was thick. Like, it was so thick that, according to officers, when they had dogs out there, if the dogs got more than a few feet away, they couldn't see them anymore. There were a ton of brambles and briars that were large enough to rip through the police's pants and their shirts when they reached down into it. There were dense patches of poison ivy that made traveling through the area dangerous. It was full of ticks and other biting insects that would just constantly harass the police as they searched. And this is all in the warmer months. In the cooler months, you also had, you know, snow on top of everything. So it was a nasty, nasty area to walk through and thus a really great spot to hide a body. Now, Melissa's story has an odd twist that we need to talk about before we move forward. Her parents who lived in Connecticut, filed a missing persons report after she stopped responding to phone calls, text messages, and Facebook messages in July of 2009, so over a year before she was found. There was a mix-up, and the Connecticut police misfiled the missing persons report, causing weeks to go by without any police efforts being made to find the poor young woman. Now, four days after filing the report... Melissa called her little sister, or rather, Melissa's phone called her little sister. Who was on the line was not Melissa. It was a man with a raspy voice asking the young girl if she was Melissa's sister. When she confirmed that she was, the man went on to say that Melissa was a whore and made some other not-so-nice comments. Melissa's family reported this call to the police, and then we have a sitcomish situation where, oh, we don't have a missing persons report, and yada, yada, yada. So it takes a few weeks to sort that out. A few days later, however, the man called Melissa's sister again, doing the same spiel. This happened a total of six times. When the Connecticut police finally got their act together, they pulled the phone records and determined that All the calls were coming from Manhattan during the busiest times of day for phone traffic. So they surmised that this caller was doing his best to blend into the phone noise that was going on in New York. Additionally, Melissa's boyfriend slash former pimp or driver, or I don't know his official title, I didn't see a business card, uh, John Terry also received these phone calls. He described the caller as an older white man who sounded drunk. 
This matched what Melissa's sister had reported. Both also stated the caller knew a whole heck of a lot about Melissa and themselves. Johnny, for example, said the man would describe the tattoos he had and what Johnny's traveling habits were. Once a news report about these phone calls aired in August of 2019, the calls immediately stopped. The other girls' phone records were eventually searched as well, but the other three used burner phones that were effectively untraceable and left no records. All right, so let's jump back into our timeline. Between March 29th and April 4th of 2011, four more sets of remains were found. One was a small child wrapped in a blanket. Another was nothing more than a severed head in a plastic bag. The third was a largely dismembered torso. Based on these findings, police announced that they would be expanding their search area on April 6th. Though it is unclear when, the small child that was found was determined to be the daughter of one of the female victims. A tiny bit of sunshine in this cloud of horribleness. There was no evidence that the child suffered a violent death. On April 11th, partial skeletal remains of another victim were found in a plastic bag. Four hours after that discovery, a lone skull was discovered by cadaver dogs. Their search area was again expanded on April 14th. Divers began combing the waterfront on April 20th. In an effort to quell rising fears that a serial killer was on the loose, police released a statement on May 9th claiming that the Gilco Beach area has apparently been used just as a dumping grounds for bodies of at least three different murderers. Because more killers are better somehow? I don't get the logic on this, but police are forced to release another statement on May 15th, 2011, that no current or former police officer was under suspicion for any of these murders. As you can tell, there was lots of theories flying around real quick. All right. September 20th, 2011, police released details on five victims, the unidentified ones, including sketches that could be made of two faces. One is a white woman and one, oddly, is an Asian man. On November 29th, 2011, police announced that they've revised their initial theory and now believe that all 10 murders were committed by a single man. The serial killer, they say, is likely the work of a Long Islander. In October of 2012, Hurricane Sandy smashed into the coast and forever changed the crime scene. We don't really know whether this made it better or worse for finding the bodies, whether any bodies were carried out to sea, or how it impacted this investigation. Jumping way far ahead, May 28, 2020, so less than a month ago, one of the unidentified victims was finally identified, Valerie Mack. She was 24 when she was killed, and her remains were found at two different locations 40 miles apart. Okay, so that's a rough timeline that we've covered. Let's jump back to Shannon. She's going to be kind of our protagonist through this. Now, the search for Shannon Gilbert was reopened on December 5th, 2011, after police started finding all these bodies everywhere. On December 13th, Shannon's remains were found in a previously unsearched marsh in the Oak Beach area. 
As of May 1st, 2012, her death remains classified as undetermined. However, police claim she was not a victim of the same killer as the other 10 victims. And the reasoning for this is a little suspicious to me. They've pointed out that she wasn't buried in a burlap sack. Well, only four of the bodies were. They've pointed out that there's no evidence of strangulation. Well, they couldn't recover all of her skeleton, and so it was impossible to determine that. I don't know why they've drawn this line in the sand that she's not part of the story, but it seems pretty clear to me that she is as we go through. Now, this marsh happened to be located on the property of somebody we've talked about. Guess who? Dr. Hackett. The police had to drain the marsh to find her body, and this was over Dr. Hackett's objections. Shannon was discovered pantsless and laying face up. Now, experts note that during the time Shannon went missing, the marsh would have been pretty dry. And if she would have drowned, it would have been in less than eight inches of water. Laying on her back, face up, eight inches of water, that's probably, I mean, that's enough to cover up your mouth if you get knocked out and, and would kill you. But you'd really have to have the right set of circumstances to, to meet your demise that way, I think. So, Dr. Hackett, he was known as being a nuisance to his neighbors and had a reputation for being a huge exaggerator. Though he retired as a doctor, he would often assist the police with his medical skills. However, even the police would fire him from that position for his constant exaggerations, claiming he helped to solve crimes he was never involved in. He misused his police-issued cell phone, and he would claim to be working hours when he wouldn't even be in town. There were rumors throughout the community that he continued to practice medicine kind of off the books, that you could go to him and get prescription drugs illegally. Uh, He was particularly known for opiates, which there's some evidence he may have abused himself. It's also said by some people that Dr. Hackett went out of his way to insert himself into Shannon's case. And this is apparently why the police never considered him a suspect. He was just too keen to receive the attention. Now, on November 15th, 2012, after being convinced that the police weren't going to do nothing, Shannon's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Dr. Hackett. They claimed that he was the last person to see Shannon alive, that he drugged her, and at least contributed to her death if wasn't the direct cause of it. They relied pretty heavily on his phone call to Mary the day after Shannon went missing. And Dr. Hackett consistently denied ever meeting Shannon or knowing about anything beyond what the news had reported on the case. He adamantly denied ever calling Mary. But during the course of the wrongful death suit, Guess what we find? His phone records. And guess what they show? He called Mary on the day that Mary claims he called. And then apparently he called back a second time. He couldn't offer a reason why he would have Mary's number. Now, both times that he called, he called from 
a location in New Jersey, not from his Oak Beach home in Long Island. As part of the lawsuit, the Gilbert family paid for another autopsy to be performed on Shannon. This autopsy detected no drugs in her system, but it did determine that several tips of her fingers and toes had been cut off, apparently in an effort to prevent her from being identified, and that her hyoid bones were missing. Those are the bones in the neck that forensic investigators use or help use to determine whether or not somebody's been strangled. Often those bones end up getting cracked or broken if you're forcibly strangled. We may have talked about that before, but in case you missed that episode. Ultimately, the second autopsy reached the same conclusion that Shannon's cause of death was undetermined. And But it, it, it reached that conclusion largely because of those hyoid bones being missing. So the examiner couldn't determine for certain whether or not she had been strangled. Sadly, Mary, who had been Shannon's only advocate throughout this process, ended up being killed by her youngest daughter, Sarah, not long after all of these events. Sarah had a long history of mental health issues. She was hospitalized 10 times in three years preceding Mary's death. And uh, she apparently kind of lost it. Mary tried to calm her down, and she drew a kitchen knife and, and ended Mary's life. Okay, so now we're going to jump into some shenanigans. In December of 2015, the FBI officially joined the investigation. Why did they wait so long? Well, it so happens that they joined the investigation one day after a former police commissioner, James Burke, was arrested. It was rumored that Burke refused to accept the FBI's assistance with this investigation, largely because the FBI was investigating him. Burke was sentenced to 46 months in prison for assaulting a suspect, denying the suspect access to an attorney, and intimidating his underling officers into covering up the assault he had committed. Burke had a noteworthy history of involvement with prostitutes and even was charged one time for <laughs> allowing one access both to his police cruiser and to a service weapon. Amazingly, he was not disciplined over this event, which begs the question to me, what on earth do you have to do to get in trouble if that don't do it? Okay, around this same time, the district attorney's office was also undergoing a federal investigation. It was claimed that the DA was strong-arming political opponents and engaging in witness tampering to make convictions. The DA eventually resigned from office in early 2017 and was convicted of these charges. So you have the police that are conducting this investigation, apparently being led by a corrupt officer. And you have the prosecutors who are assisting with the investigation being led by a corrupt attorney. I'm literally speechless on what to say about that. I've sat here with several moments of dead air, which I've edited out. Be I, I, wow, wow, that's all I'll say, I guess. Wow. Now, the Gilbert's family attorney had consistently claimed that the police withheld key documents related to Shannon's death as part of the lawsuit, 
and claimed this corruption was evidence that he was right. Once all of this corruption was uncovered, that meant new officers and new prosecutors had to be brought in to handle this investigation, which obviously slowed things down, maybe even pushed it back. We don't know how far, but it certainly hampered progress towards finding a killer. Now, there's also been allegations leveled that the police didn't take this case seriously because the victims were largely sex workers. It wasn't until the police realized the scope and seriousness of the crimes that they began to, you know, do some real investigating. Robert Kochler is the author of a book called Lost Girls, which has been made into a movie, I think is on Netflix. And he claims that the police were just overwhelmed at the scope of this case and felt like they could move slowly to kind of get their sea legs underneath them because of the victims, that there wouldn't be any public pressure to move quickly. Former FBI agent Brad Garrett suggests the killer has a connection with Gilco Beach, where the bulk of these bodies were found. Garrett strongly believes the killer grew up in the area or lived nearby. There are many who suspect that the Long Island serial killer is a former police officer or otherwise intimately familiar with police investigation tactics, as this knowledge allowed him to avoid detection for so long. For example, the toddler and the mother who were killed, they were dumped in different counties. That meant that multiple police agencies had to work together to determine just if the two were related, much less doing real investigation on the case. Now, as of this recording, as we talk today, the murders remain unsolved, and five of the ten victims haven't even been identified. Now, there are some folks that claim there's, I guess we'd call it the two-killer theory, that there were at least two people involved in these murders, because of how the condition of the bodies have changed over the years. The original four bodies which were found, who are known as the Gilco Beach Four, were intact, and they were wrapped in burlap. Bodies that were found later in the investigation were dismembered, and efforts had been made to remove identifying characteristics such as tattoos and fingerprints. The later found bodies also include a man and a mother and child, both of whom didn't fit this pure sex worker theory very well. So, and, and remember, when we're talking about time here, it's the time the bodies were found, not necessarily when they were killed. As we said earlier, the original four bodies, the Gilco Beach Four, were found in a condition that they were described by some as a trophy display. So the killer could come and meditate or admire his work. The other bodies were not kept in any such condition. And the bodies were found over a long stretch of time, like we've said, over roughly over 20 years, which would be challenging for one person to keep up on their own without screwing up at some point. There was also another serial killer focusing on sex workers known as the Eastbound Strangler, who killed four women in October and November of 2006 in Atlantic City. Some think he used Long Island as his dumping grounds, too, and could be responsible for some of the bodies that are being attributed to this Long Island serial killer. 
There are also some who will note that it would be a remarkable coincidence to have two killers using the same burial grounds and that the evidence may suggest the killer merely became better and better as he became more experienced at disposing of bodies. So his need to cut off fingertips or decapitate victims was lessened as he got better and better at his craft, I guess we'll say. Some of the phone calls from Melissa's phone, jumping back to that, were to Manorville, which is where a fellow by the name of John Bitroloff lived. Bitroloff is suspected in being involved in some of these murders, at least partially. He was convicted in 2017 of murdering two sex workers during the early 90s. Now, police believe Bitroff may also have been involved in Melissa's death as she and Bitroff's grown daughter were close friends, thus giving him a natural connection and opportunity to gain Melissa's trust and get her alone. All right, time for my thoughts. I know y'all are just itching for me to ride into town and solve this murder case that's been bugging folks for years. I mean, that's why I'm here, right? I am a huge fan of the idea of Dr. Hackett being involved. I can't speculate as to motive because anyone that is a serial killer has a very skewed view of the world. Maybe he thought sex workers were unholy and needed to be purged from the earth. Maybe they just provide an easy target for some of the bloodlust he harbored. Who knows? Serial killers are odd birds, and trying to get into their mind is not something I'm willing to do. But here's why I'm betting a lot of money on our good doc. First, he had very easy access to the dumping site. Second, there's a common thread of whoever did this new police procedure. Well, Dr. Hackett spent years working for the police after his retirement. Maybe he doesn't have the procedural knowledge and investigative knowledge of a grizzled detective, but he was bound to pick up on a few things. I mean, he had a certain level of intelligence to make it through medical school. And if he wants to be a serial killer, then he'll be paying attention to how police operate as he's working with them. Third, he called Mary Gilbert and said that he had taken Shannon into his house while she was missing then lied about it in court, only to be impeached by his own phone records. The same Shannon who was found dead in the marsh on his property that he didn't want drained. And it happened to be in a spot that one could easily see from his back porch. Fourth, during the civil trial, Mary had multiple neighbors of Dr. Hackett's who were effectively strangers to Mari testify that Dr. Hackett illegally provided them with prescription drugs and he would regularly provide medical care for people at his house. He even had an exam table in his living room. The only people that took Dr. Hackett's side in refuting this were his own family members. And my favorite bit, and I've got this video linked in the show notes, and really, guys, go watch it. Because this, this is what sealed it for me. My wife saw the video and said, oh, he's guilty of something. She didn't know what I was researching. She didn't know what this episode was about. But she saw it and said, 
that man's guilty of something. All right. So while the civil trial is going on, okay, Dr. Hackett refused comment with the press, as he should, but he was eventually ambushed by a news crew when he was leaving a deposition, and they kept bugging him about Shannon's disappearance. In this video, you can watch him walking across the parking lot. They're asking questions. He's denying it. He's clearly agitated, as we all would be if we were being accused of being a murderer or if we were actively trying to hide the fact that we were a murderer. When he gets to his vehicle, he turns and faces them with a look of disgust on his face. And then he faked a heart attack and collapsed on film only to immediately recover when people started calling 911. Seriously, I'm not making this up. Watch the video. It is comical how bad this is. Now, as soon as the civil trial was over, Dr. Hackett fled town, ended up in Florida, and tries to distance himself from this case as much as possible. Look, in my opinion, this guy is a joke. He is a sociopath, and I have no idea why the police have not investigated this dude more. I am all in on Hackett being the Long Island serial killer. All in. I don't even want to pay attention to the other suspects, but I feel like I ought to. So Bitterloff, he doesn't worry me. Yes, he had killed two sex workers previously, but his only connection to the victims is his daughter was friends with one of them. There's no evidence that he knew any of the others, that he was still out there trolling for booty to kill. And it sounds like from the murders he committed in the 90s, he was pretty sloppy. They found DNA evidence um, as far as hairs, and he didn't really do much of an effort to cover up the bodies, anything like that. I mean, it, it, he's, there are there's some evidence that shines the light on him a little bit, but it's not enough to move my needle at all. Former police commissioner Burke has sometimes looked at as a suspect because of all the bad stuff he did as a police commissioner. But, you know, assaulting a thief and denying him his right to an attorney and telling his officers, don't you dare tell anybody what I've done here, is a totally different level than murdering 10 people and hiding their bodies. I don't see any evidence of Burke committing these sorts of crimes. Of course, we can look at Joseph Brewer, the John that Shannon was with that night, but he just seemed like he called the wrong sex worker. And of course the driver, he only seemed in making he only seemed concerned in making sure he got paid for his job. The doctor did it, guys. I'm completely sold on the doctor doing it. It's too con why would he call and say, I run a home for wayward girls and then deny it? And there's also in the Netflix documentary uh, I referenced earlier. There's a scene in it. I don't know if it's true or not because I didn't find any independent sources on my own confirming this. But it was said that he was kind of the president of the Homeowners Association for this neighborhood, which to me is further evidence that he's a sociopath because only crazy people seem to want to be presidents of homeowners associations. And that as such, he had access to all the security footage and other little bits of evidence that the police would need. When the police came poking around, he never offered any of that up. 
And when he was questioned as to why, he allegedly said, well, it's your job to investigate. So he had no desire to help out. He had no desire to help out because he did it. He did it. He did it. I'm going to my grave saying he did it. Feel free to email me and tell me I'm wrong, but my heels are dug in on this one until I see some new evidence. Okay, if you're interested in this case and really want to take a deeper dive, there's a podcast called Unresolved, and they did a three-part series on these killings. Michael Whelan, who runs the podcast, did a really fantastic job jumping into everything. It's over two hours worth of content, plus he has multiple follow-up episodes. It's, it's really amazingly thorough, and he doesn't scream like a madman about the doctor doing it, so you may enjoy that. So another day, another case solved. I'm glad to provide this service to the world for free. Now let's jump into my, or my, <laughs> let's jump into our palate cleanser that has been provided to me from my loving son. Well, wait. All right, it seems my loving son has left the house with my wife to go get a cat because apparently me supporting a wife, three boys, a mother-in-law, two dogs, and one cat is not enough of a burden on me, so we're going to add another fur baby on there. So I've had to come up with the joke due to his dereliction of duty. So the best I can do is what happened when the skunk was on trial? The judge declared, odor in the court, odor in the court. And with that, our episode's over. It needs to end that way. Remember, as always, rate our awesome little show, leave us a glowing review, subscribe, and remember to join the private group on Facebook. Your time is almost up to win a gift card or to give control of this program to my absent son. You don't want to miss out. It's really simple to do. June 20th is the deadline. Be there or be square, as all the hip kids say. Also, please share the show with a friend or two. We are growing at a massive rate. It's all thanks to you. But now is not the time to rest. We must take over the Apple charts and make those corporate-run podcasts bow to our greatness. We're also on Instagram, kmh.podcast. For some reason, that's been blowing up recently. I hadn't used Instagram really in my life until recently, and wow, lots of people like it. So find us there. We post stuff. Some of it's funny. Some of it sucks. But occasionally you'll get something good. Okay, that's enough for me going on for one day. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy, love each other. We're all humans. Let's be in this together. Life sucks. We don't need to make it worse for each other. Next week is our 25th episode, Spectacular. I think I've got a few good little tricks up my sleeve that y'all won't want to miss. It's going to be fun. We are going to cover the mother of all cryptids. It will be a blast, I promise. Until then, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord splits you. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Kellen missing hidden make sure to rate subscribe and share questions 
email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.